So to begin this evening, um, just wanted to reflect a little bit on um, what we're doing when we have these talks, these Dharma talks. Um, you know, what they're for, what their place of them is on a, a retreat. And uh, Dharma is uh, a word with many meanings, many kind of nuances. And so one of the things that it refers to uh, is the teaching of the Buddha, um, but also refers to um, something we could translate as more like the way things are, or you know, the truth, the, um, the kind of law-like nature of things that's being pointed to. And I often find it helpful to think of these talks, certainly not as a kind of lecture, because uh, you may think, ah, oh, you know, lectures are something where the detail is important or the information is important. And if I was giving a lecture, I might have various uh, visual aids or write down a few things uh, to help you. Um, so we can see it actually as something quite different. It's, in some ways, we might think it's not so different from a kind of, a kind of guided meditation or a guided reflection. And there's a certain art in listening to Dharma talks uh, that is also about a sense of staying connected with our own body. So as we've been doing, feeling the legs, feeling the feet in contact with the ground, feeling the seat, some connection with the breath. And so it's like we're listening with um, the whole of our being, seeing what kind of emo emotional resonances there may be at certain points. So it's as if we're having a, a kind of period of reflection, a joint period of reflection. Uh, and I certainly don't feel uh, in my talks that I'm trying to kind of tell you all the answers or this is exactly how it is or just give you a whole set of conclusions. But the, the intention really is to stimulate your own process of reflection and looking deeply. Yeah, so that's really what we're, we're doing. And it feels uh, very helpful to put what we're doing during the day into a wider context. So, I mean, again, if, if you were to just kind of turn up from outside Gaia House as an anthropologist and think, what is going on here? What are these people doing? You know, they sit down for a bit and then they walk up and down for a while and nobody's speaking. There's no music, there's no songs. What's going on? You know, it might look a, a rather strange or esoteric activity. And so it may look like that to an outsider, and sometimes for, for in ourselves it may feel like that too. You know, so they keep saying, come back to the breath or come back to the present moment, but why? Why would I want to do that? And so, again, in my intention in the talk is to, to widen the perspective, to offer a sense of um, what may be the, the purpose, the intention behind what we're doing, to place the immediate practice of being with the breath, being with the body, being with the feet on the ground, in a wider context. And uh, the way in which I'd like to do that this evening is with reference to the Buddha's teaching on uh, the Four Noble Truths. 
uh, also called the Four Ennobling Truths by, by some teachers. And so again, for some people, this may be a teaching that you're not familiar with. Others may have heard this teaching many, many times, uh, which again is, is an invitation to, as much as possible, listen afresh. I mean, for me, the, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths is, is worth a lifetime's reflection. The teaching on suffering, struggle, anguish, however we might translate it, and how that can be released, how we can find an end to that, what that might mean. Uh, I mean, this isn't a kind of, uh, you know, sort of thing we just work out one evening and then we've got it written down, put on the shelf for the rest of our lives. But in many ways, it's a question you could say that our life asks of us. It's, it's not necessarily a question we have to seek out, but life is sometimes really demanding that we look at this. You know, why, why is life at times characterized by this sense of difficulty, stress, feeling bound down? How can we understand that? How can we respond to that? How can we find freedom within that, from that? Different ways we may understand that. So the first of these truths uh, is the truth of, of Dukkha which we may say, again, I've already intimated some of the ways we may uh, translate that, the truth of suffering or anguish, stress, dis-ease. Uh, one way I think of it is, is the, the sense that we can have of not quite being at home, a sense of incompletion, a sense of lack. There's something missing that we can feel. Um, and sometimes in our lives, I don't know if you, you ever have the feeling that we're engaged in a kind of project of getting everything together. And so life can be, I mean, if, that, if that's the project life, capital L, getting it all together. And then within that, we have our various subcategories. I've got to get together my relationship life, my family life. I've got to find some work that's meaningful. I've got to get on with friends, I've got to sort out my priorities, where to live. And so we can have all of these things we're trying to do and, and we're trying to kind of juggle and shift and change and make a little alteration here, do something else there, tweak this, adjust that. But we can feel that somehow this way of relating to things never quite feels enough. <laughs> Um, and the, the, the moment of completion just seems kind of tantalizingly distant. It's a bit like when you, you go for a walk and you're walking and you see the horizon. Ah, oh, it's over there. Great. And we walk off enthusiastically to that horizon. And then as we get there, we go, oh, there's something else. <laughs> and so this, I think, we can, we can see as, as dukkha, this kind of, ah. Oh, you know, this, this wandering. And again, one of the, the traditional images of this, of course, is that it's very circular. We're going round and round and round again. And we think, first of all, we found it here. In this situation, in a particular relationship, perhaps, that we found something that we can really rely upon. And then the conditions shift and change and move. And then, oh, okay, no, no, maybe it's here. We feel delighted 
getting a particular job. We've got a new job and we're so happy, so delighted about that, phoning all of our friends, the job of our dreams. And then we see that that too changes, it moves. And so then we're giving birth to a new project, something different. So this can be a feeling that we can have of, of a kind of wandering. We're wandering from this to that. Uh, and an endless searching, something to try to fill some deep sense of, of lack. Now, this so far may sound like, like it's, it's really bad news, but actually um, to begin to turn towards Dukkha is a very liberating thing to do. So the Buddha says there is this dukkha, there is this suffering, and this is to be understood. And so there can be a point we get to in our lives, perhaps, or in our practice, where there's a kind of wise disillusionment with the doing things the same old way. The wise disillusionment. From when we keep going around these circles again and again and again, ah, oh, this is it, this is it, this is it, ah, oh, and then it goes. Ah, oh, so it must be that, ah, oh, it goes. But we start to think, hang on, <laughs> I've been going around here time and time again. Maybe there's something here that needs to be understood a bit more deeply. Something needs to be looked at in a different way. So we have this word disillusioned. And you know, when we use that in an everyday sense, disillusioned is a bad thing. I'm really disillusioned with such and such a thing. But if we think about it more literally, to be disillusioned, some of the illusions are released, taken away. And so we can look at this dukkha, turn towards it, understand it, rather than just be unconsciously driven in some attempt to cover it up or run away from it. So it might be interesting to reflect on how this has manifested today. You know, has there been any dukkha for you today? Um, so I don't know. It may be that some of you may think, no, not at all. I woke up this morning, I was just fantastic. I heard the sound of the bell and I just leapt out of bed. My mind was clear and I went to the shower and nobody was in the shower before me. And I turned it on and it was just the right temperature and it was lovely. And I went downstairs into meditation and I sat down and they said to be with the breath and I, I just felt the breath and that was it. A whole half an hour was just there. States of rapture, bliss started to arise. I just felt completely content. Wandered off to breakfast. There was no queue. And there I was, just there, exactly what I wanted for breakfast. I just enjoyed it and lovely. And anyway, the day could go on in this fantasy day, this dukkha-free day. But perhaps, perhaps for most of us, it wasn't like that. You probably found yourself many, many times bumping into things. That, again, is a kind of image of dukkha for me. It's like, ah, you know, bumping into something. So again, that, that may have been, if we just, again, go through the day, <laughs> perhaps in another way. I mean, what was it like when, the, when, the, when you heard the sound of the bell? Maybe again, there was a feeling of, oh, I'd just like to sleep a bit longer. Or I didn't sleep so well last night because this place is not so familiar to me. If only I'd slept longer. 
And then we come into the meditation and, you know, perhaps particularly on the first day of the retreat, there might be a lot of sleepiness or restlessness. So this dukkha is, is showing up. Yeah. And the Buddha is very clear about how he talks about this. It's associated with um, wanting what is not present, getting what is not wanted. And these very basic facts of life, you think through the day. The moments when what you wanted was absent. The moments when what you didn't want was present. Whether in the sitting, the walking. How do you feel about Gaia House? Again, you may have had all kinds of things start to show up around that. Or if only this were a bit different. I like Gaia House, but... This, that or the other could be, could be different. It would be so much better. And then... Because can you see how, how a particular way of approaching dukkha is very much very future-oriented, isn't it? It's often saying, no, no, at the moment, this is a problem. The present moment is a problem. And then there's some projected promise. Some future moment will be different. So much better. So, so lovely. So then we start to dream about that. How can I create that? How can I you know, get out of it? I don't want this. How do I get that? See, it's like a whole way of being is... is uh, triggered one of the things I've been thinking about recently is uh, how we may be encouraged sometimes to respond to dukkha um, in you know society in our society um, and some of the kind of answers that are around for that, and particularly perhaps I'm quite mindful of next year being a, a general election year, so I can find my, you know, a bit more tuned into politics than I might normally be. It's just kind of thinking of the, the sort of social aspects of dukkha. And one way uh, in which our society may very often encourage us to deal with that is, is to consume something, to buy something. I mean, if we feel that there's this, this dukkha, this sense of lack, not being enough, that's underneath, this is a very powerful thing for advertising to tune into. Because it's like, it's there. You know, I, you know, whatever it is, I don't know, you can blame it on the, the wrinkles that we may see on our face, or the, you know, whatever it is, there's a, the promise, the, the product or the service can promise to fill this thing. And so then we can feel quite driven in that process of, of consuming, of looking again for something that's going to address this. The other thing that I personally can feel uh, very concerned about too is another political response to, to dukkha, is to look for someone to blame. Um, so again, I think you can sometimes see this if certain groups become somewhat uh, scapegoated. The reason we don't feel so good, the reason there's this dissatisfaction is this lot. You know, some other group that we can identify as being the source of that. It can be a very dangerous thing. So it's, it's interesting to, to see how we might be susceptible to rather simplistic explanations. It's hard to face the dukkha in life. This, this is to be understood, to turn towards it, to understand it. And how easy it is to believe the more seductive voices. Ah, you know, dukkha is not so much of a problem. 
buy this and it'll be gone. <laughs> you know, or again, it, the, the simplistic explanation that some other group is the cause of our dissatisfaction. If only it wasn't for them. So we can turn towards this, uh, this dukkha. Um, as we do that, we can begin to explore its origins. And the, the Buddha speaks of the origin of dukkha in terms of uh, tanha, which is a word which means something like craving or thirst. I like this word thirst. And I don't think this is thirst in the ordinary sense. You know, if I'm thirsty, have a glass of water, and then that's you know, quite simple. But almost this, this endless quest. Um, and I think one of the, the, the sort of images of craving or tanha is, is the model of addiction. The, the very thing that we feel that we want is the thing that then may keep us more and more within that cycle. And if we think of somebody who's uh, dependent on alcohol, you know, in that moment of, of really strong craving for it, it's as if what I really need, the thing I need more than anything else in the world is to have a drink. And of course the drink might provide, you know, a kind of temporary release, a temporary relief from that, but then again simply triggering again the, the same pattern, strengthening that same pattern. So there's something um, of an unquenchable nature about this tanha, this craving. And I think the unquenchable part of it comes because we're looking for things. We're looking for something from things that they just can't deliver. That they don't, it's not in their nature to be able to do that. We can uh, see this working on different levels. So on one level that the craving of the tanha works is in relation to sense pleasures, what's called karma tanha. You know. Again, have you seen that today? You find yourself, uh, you're in meditation, and one of us is saying, be with the breath, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. It could be quite a sense of peaceful abiding with that. But then there's a the thought, no, what I want is something nice to eat, something nice to look at, some nice sounds. Oh, if only they had music here. Or we could find ourselves you know, kind of craving for the, the sound of, of pleasant music. Food, of course, is a big one for us on retreat. You may find yourself really, I mean, I've noticed this many times on retreat, really, really looking forward to lunchtime or tea time. You know, what's it going to be? And we can feel, again, that there's this, this real reaching out for something from the senses to, uh, to respond to this, this sense of lack that we may feel. And this is where it's, it's, it's nice in our practice to to pay really close awareness to that. So when, when we do eat, to really notice what it's like when you get that, that buzz of a taste and it's around. And then all, sometimes almost immediately the impulse to have uh, another spoonful. You know, the, the quick buzz of, of the taste. You know, the fleeting, changing, ephemeral nature of the taste sensations. And the more we tune into that, I think that can begin to soften how much we're investing in you know, particular foods or particular uh, sense pleasures. 
The, the other way that, um, or another way in which craving can manifest is what's called bhavatanha, which again literally means the craving to be born, or the craving to, to be. Um, and it's interesting to reflect on, on what this might mean. And certainly for me, I think this is to do with um, when we, our craving is not so much to do with something to do with the senses, but being a particular kind of person. I mean, again, it's interesting for us to reflect on that. How much of our lives is centered on a project of creating some identity? This is who I am. And perhaps that's an identity as a successful person, perhaps, or a person who's got it all together. Um, as somehow a, an identity that is uh, acceptable in the eyes of the world. And how much energy there is to creating and defending and projecting that sense of identity. And this bhavatanha, very interesting to look at. You know, what's, I mean, if we take one aspect of that, success, you know, what is our relationship to success? There's a, an image I heard many years ago, which I find quite helpful of this, when you put the ladder against the wall, you spend all your life trying to climb up this ladder on the wall, and then only to realize that you put it it was leaning against the wrong wall. <laughs> it's a, a kind of tragic image, but you can feel again whether the ideas of success that may be unconsciously driving us, you know, where are they from? Who told us we had to be this or be that? Or succeed in particular ways, but it could be very, very strong driving force to be somebody special, to project this image, to defend this image. And of course, whenever we do that, even if we're doing that in a relatively successful way, it's always a bit fragile. It's always something that can uh, dissolve. I mean, I always uh, notice, I always feel that as I'm uh, teaching meditation. Again, you, it's just a place of suffering if you begin to grasp the identity of being a meditation teacher. It's interesting. You might think, oh, I don't know if you ever have this thought. Think, oh, look at those guys. Oh, I'd like to do that one day. But if you see it as, a, as, a, as an identity, it's just another place to cling. Uh, and it can very much be, be a place of, of dukkha, of suffering in that way. So if I'm clinging to this ideal of being a meditation teacher and I'm making this point with my hand and then, ah, oh, hit the microphone. And then it makes a big sound. Oh, what's going on? And I start to go red. And oh, no, I'm going red in front of him. I better have some water. And then knock over the water or hit the... You know, suddenly it's all dissolved. Or somebody writes me a note in an hour's time and says, I really didn't like your talk at all. You know, like, yeah. but, but we can notice that that, that can happen. It's, it's when, whenever you're, you're clinging to this idea of being somebody, and again, it's interesting for, for us all to reflect, where do we do that in our lives? How much investment goes into that? <laughs> Craving can also uh, sometimes manifest really the opposite energy, which is wanting to just tune out. It's all too much. I've had enough. It's sometimes called vibhavatana, the craving not to be. And we can see this in, in different ways. Again, if you have that time when you just think, 
Again, it, I think when the projects of the other two just exhaust us. I spent all day trying to find something really nice to eat and absorb into and nice experiences and pleasant experiences. I've tried to be a success and that's just exhausting because I've got all these different projects running around and I can't juggle it all. I've just had enough. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get into bed. I'm going to put the duvet over me and that's it. The world can just go. I'm just lying in this blank space. You know, you just want to switch off. This kind of craving not to be. Again, I, I think this is around quite a lot in our culture. Um, and certain things that superficially look like they're pleasure-seeking may in fact be more like this vibhavatanha. I mean, I think binge drinking that people can be concerned about. Sometimes people think, well, this, this is a pleasure-seeking activity. But I wonder, actually, if it's more to be understood in terms of a wish not to be, a wish to just turn it all off if life feels difficult, hard to bear, to somehow get into a state where it's just absent. We're not present. A wish to escape. So, sometimes when people uh, reflect on the Four Noble Truths, you can get the impression, and I'm I'm always uh, wary of giving this impression that there's something pessimistic about this teaching. So just to be really clear about why this is not the case. Um, the first is, is that this, these are not supposed to be absolutes. It's not that um, the Buddha or anybody else is saying everything in life is just suffering from start to finish. You know, it's just a really bleak and pessimistic view because we know that's not the case. Life is a, a mixture of pleasure and pain. We have uh, moments of um, you know, loveliness, moments of difficulty, moments of joy, moments of sadness. We're praised as well as blamed. There's a, a whole changing flow of life and it would be very, um, you know, not only pessimistic, but just, just uh, not true to deny that other side of things. Um, it's also not pessimistic because as it's pointing to letting go of over-investing in any existing condition, over-investing in our relationships or our work or our particular projects to deliver some final sense of completion, what we begin to wake up to is that we really didn't need to do that. It's not, a, it's not a resigned place. It's not, oh, okay, you know, everything's changing, everything's suffering, you can't rely on anything. Ugh. But actually there's a, there's a joy and a freedom that is, is much more basic that we can begin to taste and deepen in. And this is really the third truth, Nibbāna, the, the cessation of suffering. So notice again there are two teachings that could be uh, superficially look similar but are so different. That one, the kind of more depressing, pessimistic teaching, ah, you know, life is too difficult, you can't rely on anything. Even if you find a nice relationship, that'll change and fade. <laughs> but this is different. This is saying when we let go of over-identifying with any condition, when we let go of over-investing in any condition, a more fundamental sense of freedom begins to reveal itself, that we never needed those things 
to rely on those things. We never needed them to be any different from how they are. One way into beginning to tune into and understand this is that it's a kind of happiness or peace or freedom for no reason. It's, this is one of the meanings of unconditioned, for no reason. If we think, whenever we say, I mean, this is just a piece of pure logic, I'm happy for a reason, if that reason is unstable, then our happiness is unstable. Just a pure piece of logic, so I'll say it again. If I'm happy for a reason, and if the reason is unstable, then my sense of happiness is unstable too. So if I'm happy because my, my work is going well, it's that because, this is the tricky thing. So then as the work begins to change or there's a restructuring or the, uh, my manager has a bad day and starts relating to me differently or the external circumstances of work change, then it begins to dissolve. It's like I'm trying to build a house on something. I've been building a house on something that actually the, the, it's, the foundations are, are not solid. Whereas when we touch into a well-being that is not built upon shifting sands, it's not, not because of anything. We can see how this is, is freeing uh, in a quite different way. And so how do we, we relate to this uh, idea of, of Nibbana? I mean, one thing is... Uh, helpful, I think, is to notice the more ordinary moments. Sometimes you can think, well, nibbana, or we're maybe more familiar with the Sanskrit nirvana. Well, that's okay if you if you lived in Tibet in the 14th century. They, those guys knew about nirvana, but I, I, you know, I live in Bristol in the 21st century. What's that got to do with me? I've got a busy job. I've got all these things going on. Or if I go and you know, Saturn sat in a cave, looked, looked at the wall of a cave for nine years. I might get some feeling of what this is about, but again. So it can be something that becomes very distant, worship from afar, nothing to do with me. So tuning in to what we might call those more ordinary moments of cessation. Those ordinary moments when those projects of becoming soften uh, and cease. I don't know if you noticed today, but it happened to me a couple of times. I'm not quite sure whether, I think it might be noise from the pipes or the heating or something. And it's kind of on like that. And then you get this moment when it just stops. And I don't know if your experience of that was like mine, but it's only really in the stopping that I fully noticed that it was there. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't thinking, oh, there's all this kind of... But it's just, ah, something stopped. Fridges do it too, you know, the buzz of a fridge suddenly stops. And we can experience these moments in our practice, in our life, and sometimes they're quite subtle, sometimes they're really quite, you know, you don't quite know what's hit you. But, yeah, I mean, this, this word cessation, it, it, it's like a kind of um, background irritation or a background dis-ease that can simply cease. And when that 
in those moments, whether we do, whether that's small or large, something else opens up, and this is when we can say the path opens up. The fourth truth is is revealed in in those moments, and so I would say too, not to underestimate the moments of stillness, the moments of quiet, the moments of peace that we can tune into on a retreat. It may well be a moment in the walking meditation when we just hear the sound of the birds and the preoccupations about our work or our family difficulties have just just settled. And it's just that moment. Notice again in those moments that the sense of self has really softened too. And this is nice to know. It's not like, ah, because again, so much of our culture tells us that real fulfillment lies in being something. You know, the, the best moment of all is when I'm a success. I've done something wonderful. And the, the, these moments really question that quite strongly. Those moments of peace and freedom, well, where's the sense of self then? <laughs> just something we just get touched by that. So what does it mean, this end of suffering? And I think it's very helpful to have that as a question rather than as a a kind of set answer. Um, One way I've thought about this um, is that there's some kind of parallel between how we might think about Nibbāna and how some uh, practitioners in, in other traditions, say in uh, theistic traditions, people who, who uh, believe in, in God, um, that there may be a parallel in terms of how our understanding may shift and change. So I'd just like to explain that a bit. I find it helpful. I just offer it. It may or may not be helpful. Um, but just to say, I don't mean to imply this, that Nibbāna means God or anything. I think they're quite different um, concepts. But if you, if you imagine a, a person who believes in God, when they're a um, child, their concept of God may well be this famous old man in the sky. You know, the old man with the big beard and the long uh, hair. Uh, and then as they get older, they may begin to question that conception. So in a way that no longer serves them, that no longer makes sense. And they may move on to some other kind of understanding. But then in that understanding, they may also come to a point where they realize that even in this more subtle understanding of God, that maybe that was simply reflecting their own fantasies or their own desires or their own ideals. And we can see, can't we, sometimes uh, uh, these people have this idea of of God that reflects their own perhaps nationalistic concerns, this idea God is on my side, the side of me and mine and my country. So then we can imagine this practitioner then gets to a place where they, they begin to see that through that too. So they're seeing through the old man in the sky, then they're seeing through the God as a projection of the nationalistic tendencies. And they may read some theology and they come across the idea that God is the ground of being. So they say, ah, oh, that makes more sense. And then they settle into that. And they uh, 
another or come to a place where they say God is the other side of myself questioning which I thought was a rather interesting uh, definition that one uh, um, theologian gives so you can see how you know on one level in this person's practice that they may have believed in God at all these different stages but that actually changes as the practice matures so then to turn and to apply that to Nibbana I mean I, I find it rather interesting to reflect that maybe there's a parallel so when we first hear of ideas about Nibbana or the cessation of suffering we may develop what is in, in essence our own fantasy it's quite an interesting idea you know is is there this fantasy that's actually informing our practice we have some idea of what that's going to be like what our deepest longings are I just yeah and it could be something like I just I just I don't want to have any difficult days anymore I want to get to a place where the ordinary ups and downs of being a human being have stopped I don't want to be this vulnerable person <laughs> so then we're chasing Nibbana as a kind of invulnerability But then in our practice too, maybe we begin to see that maybe that's what we previously reached for and searched for is itself something to let go of, a fantasy to be released. And so it may, it may change and move. And so I'd really encourage us to have a very creative sense. What is Nibbana? What is the end of suffering? What does that mean? The cessation of greed, hatred and delusion. And uh, for me, I think it's, it's very helpful as a lived question rather than as something where we have particularly set and defined answers. You know, questions have this, this feeling of leading onwards, leading on to something new, or something fresh, something opening. Sometimes an answer can feel like a closure, a kind of premature com completion. And so, as we relate to this idea of Nibbana, I mean, certainly the, the place where I'm steering a middle way through is on the one hand making it something so far away, so distant, so transcendent that we can only worship it from afar. In a way, it becomes somewhat irrelevant. Or, on the other hand, reducing it to something so ordinary, so commonplace, you know, that moment when I felt a little bit peaceful. Oh, that must have been Nibbana. That's what it's about. And so to me, that, that there's, a, there's a creativity there in how we understand and how that idea informs and inspires our practice. Yeah. Neither to be worshipped from afar nor to be reduced. And a question we can live with. So the, the fourth truth then is, is the truth of the path. So the first truth, the truth of, of struggle, anguish, difficulty. The second truth, how that's rooted in craving, whether that be for sense experience or for status, for some identity. The third truth, the cessation, the uh, release of suffering, the release of greed and hatred. And the fourth truth, the path, which effectively means a way of life or a way of being. 
So how do our understandings translate? How do they uh, become manifest in our lives? In how we speak, in how we act, in how we live. And so there's uh, much we could say about the path and, uh, and we'll be exploring many aspects of it more in our time together. But just again, it's sometimes helpful to have a feeling of, of the overall picture. And one of the ways of understanding the overall picture is in terms of, of sila, samadhi and panya, or ethics, meditation, wisdom. Yeah. What are we doing? What are we doing when we practice on a retreat? What are we doing when we practice in our lives? We're doing those uh, things, these aspects. Our practice is uh, completely rooted and grounded in a sense of ethical integrity. To try to divorce this practice from the ethics that Caroline was speaking about yesterday, the the non-violence, the the non-harming, the the contentment and non-greediness, absolutely written into our practice. And we can see that they're, they're very related to the understandings that come from the Four Noble Truths. So ethics, in this sense, aren't a set of abstract duties, not things that we must do, we're supposed to do, we should do, because they're somehow imposed from without. But actually they're the things that make sense. I don't know if you feel that, if you can see that, but when we're seeing more clearly, it just makes sense to act in a more loving way and kind and compassionate way. I don't know how you feel when you're in touch with your own mortality, for instance, when we're in touch with the fact that we are, our time here is limited. Um, Conscious of our own death. What that does to superficiality and and again I I don't know what it's like for you but I can certainly feel in my life a a sort of movement between this mind that really understands you know a big kind of sense of the of the perspective of things Uh, and within that perspective to be loving to be kind to be compassionate to see others really as we're all in the in the same boat to Others don't seem so different or so alien or so strange, but we just begin to relate. Oh, they are also beings that have been born and will die, and have pleasure and pain, bodies that get sick. So we begin to relate in that way. You know what? It just it makes sense to the the the, the kind of um, feeling with is just there naturally. And yet then. Again, I don't know about you, but in my experience, then suddenly that closes down <laughs> and something else comes in. And I'm like, how can they have done that? <laughs> and and that, that broader perspective can be, can be somewhat lost. And there's a narrowing or a constraining and a constricting. And then I uh, find myself feeling and thinking, reacting in different ways. Uh, one of the, the meanings of mindfulness is remembering, recollecting. And for me, that's one of the things why I value retreat so deeply. 
because it, it, it's one of the doorways into that larger perspective. Uh, sometimes life forces that upon us. I mean, really difficult moments in life, for instance, say moments of bereavement, can really trigger that sense of what, well, what really matters. And yet in our practice, I think we're saying we're not going to wait for that. We don't, we don't need to wait for that. But engaging in the practice is, is inviting that larger perspective from which the, the ethical way of being is the, the way that, that simply makes sense. The ethics then, of course, feeds into being more gathered, more calm, more stillness in our hearts and minds. And we can see how um, more sort of unethical behavior can stir up the mind, can agitate the mind. And the more that we live with integrity, it just creates the conditions for the mind to be more still. And in this practice, that, that stillness is not then an end in itself, but is something we can use to look again more deeply, to understand more deeply. And to see more clearly the uh, struggle and the end of struggle. And the more clearly we can see it in our own hearts and minds, the more able we're just able to, to share that with others, to able to help, to do what's helpful, what's appropriate and what serves. And uh, it's just a, a one way in which we can see the practice is never simply for ourselves. Again, if you see this in your own experience, but our own capacity to, to really be there for others, to help others, is very much nurtured in what we're doing. And so again, that's a, a perspective we can really bring to our, our days on retreat, the time you think, oh, do I really want to do more walking? <laughs> Shall I go back to the sitting? You know, what, what's this about? Sitting with the busy mind or the aching body. But we can contact the, the compassionate motivation. We practice for ourselves and we practice for others. And we can see that division can really soften as we practice. So let's uh, sit together uh, just for a couple of minutes to allow the, the words of the talk to be absorbed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.